I've had such a delightful week here in Honolulu. You guys have a beautiful place to live. Texas looks a lot like the stage. You guys have a beautiful place here. We've been so grateful to uh, Nolan and to uh, Pastor Matt, to the Waterhouse Lecture Series and YLA Baptist Church for hosting us. We've just had a wonderful time serving with you guys this weekend. We just wrapped up in what I think was an excellent apologetics conference here. If you weren't able to make it, uh, I'm, I understand that the videos will be on the Waterhouse uh, website. I hope you'll avail yourselves of those. J.P. Moreland is uh, an amazing, well-known Christian scholar that I hope you'll uh, take the time to listen to. Uh, I was honored by Pastor Matt, who, as you mentioned, I shared an office uh, wall with for know, three, four years uh, to have the opportunity from him to preach this morning. Uh, he seemed excited when I uh, agreed to, to preach. Uh, he even was kind enough to say that he expects that after hearing me preach this morning, you all will appreciate him even more uh, next week. So I, uh, I, think, I think I appreciate that very much, Matt. So. So I want to talk this morning about uh, something that we all know to be true, that Christian churches, everywhere they are found, each strive to be faithful, local expressions of the body of Christ. But we also know, of course, this does not simply happen uh, carelessly or passively. And we know that as believers, we share certain common uh, commitments, and I'll say, in fact, responsibilities toward one another. Uh, in the body of Christ, and this, of course, involves serving. So this morning, what I want to talk about with you is the biblical framework for a church that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, serves in unity, leading to love. Before we get it to the passage, let me just open us in a quick word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful to you for making us your family for uniting us, Holy Spirit, together in love. And we acknowledge that with this comes responsibility. So we pray that you'll attune our minds to what you're saying in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning and to help us to understand and take seriously, more seriously than we have before now, our responsibility. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. So join me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at the first 16 verses. So it's Ephesians 4, Genesis, Exodus, Ephesians. It's a little joke. Don't worry about that. While you're flipping there, I want to share with you a story uh, from Acts, actually, to uh, give us a moment to flip to this place. Uh, but because we'll be spending our time looking at Ephesians, I want to tell you a quick story about uh, the author of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, and his companion in ministry, Barnabas. In Acts chapter 14 find an amazing story, actually a, a, an interesting sequence of stories about the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is his first missionary journey, uh, with, uh, his companion Barnabas is along, and we know from the preceding chapter in Acts 13 that the Holy Spirit had set apart Paul and Barnabas for the purpose of carrying the gospel throughout the northeast Mediterranean world. They set out from Antioch, uh, they sailed to the island of Cyprus, from there, they sailed on uh, up to Perga, and from Perga, they traveled northward to another city also named Antioch, so we call this one Pisidian Antioch, uh, and from there, up to Iconium, and from there, uh, to a handful of cities uh, around Lystra, that's about 18 miles nor uh, southwest of Iconium, and from there on to a collection of cities in the region of Derby. It's about 55 uh, more miles southwest. 
Now, upon arriving in Derby, something really interesting happens. They've just traveled about 650 miles, uh, planting churches, uh, converting people to the gospel. And it's at this point that we read in Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. I'll just read it to you briefly. Uh, we find that after they had proclaimed the good news in that city, Derby, uh, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in their faith, saying, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. And when verse 23, we find that when they had appointed elders for them in the various churches, then with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the protection of the Lord in whom they had believed. This is, this is a passage that always knocks my socks off, because I think, my goodness, Paul and Barnabas are uh, examples par excellence of believers who served their church, in this case as missionaries and church planters. So to set the stage, I just want to point out two quick characteristics of these servants. We see right away their willingness to forsake convenience, but it's not explicit in the passage. You see, they travel 650 miles. When they reach the cities in Derby, they're only about 85 miles uh, a little further west to Paul's hometown of Tarsus and just a little short hop beyond that to their sending church. It would be about 100 miles to just go on home and complete the circle. But we read that they turned around and went all the way back through all the same cities. So they were willing to forsake convenience in order to serve the church. We also see that they're willing to forsake comfort because if you continue on through the chapter and read about their experiences, from their first stop on Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas were uh, the targets of multiple murder attempts, mobs, various attempts to, on their lives. Yet despite these hardships, we read in uh, 1421 of Acts that they went right back through the very same cities. So they didn't only forsake uh, uh, convenience, they also forsaked comfort. And so I think these are good characteristics to keep in mind as we move now to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. Okay, in this passage, Ephesians 4, Paul is addressing to believers how we are to serve the local church in the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you're looking in the passage for a list of uh, specific programs to launch or particular activities that you can uh, think about getting involved in, you just won't find anything like that here. And in fact, at first glance, this passage doesn't uh, obviously, uh, at least, doesn't seem to discuss service in the church. But I think that there's a nasty little reason why that is, and it's because we've tended in the modern church to think about service a little differently, significantly differently, in fact, from the way the Apostle Paul thought of it. Let's just read through this passage together at the outset and then move through three main points. So uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, there it is on the screen. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you too were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given 
according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he captured captives, he gave gifts to men. Now, what is the meaning of he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. In verse 11, it was he, that, that is Christ, who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ until all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So, we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people, who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes, but instead practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. This isn't a passage explaining to me specifically how to serve my church, uh, but I beg to differ. It will be a passage explaining to all of us how we collectively will come together to serve the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's break this down into three chunks. Let's talk about the first six verses first. In this short passage, the first six verses, Paul explains that it is by and only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can serve the church in unity leading to love. So let's just unpack what he says. Notice Paul's starting point here in these first six verses. He says that on the basis of our salvation, that's uh, from, from uh, verse 1 and then 4 and 5, he, he, uh, as he says, the calling with which we have been called. This is a reference to our salvation. It's the starting point. He says that on that basis we have been given. Notice we have been, the recipients, we have been given the unity of the Spirit. Now this is important because it provides the theological basis, the foundation for all of the rest of his argument in the passage. So we need to understand what he's talking about here. Paul talks in this passage about two kinds, two different kinds of unity. The first is explicit. It's called spiritual unity. Uh, this is not something that we in any way are responsible for, and that's clear, it's precisely because none of us is responsible for securing or accomplishing our own salvation. Our salvation, rather, is entirely accomplished by God. Well, when Paul refers to the spiritual unity that is accomplished by salvation, he is referring specifically to the Holy Spirit's work of uniting each of us individual believers together into the family of God. So, for example, uh, I was born into the Lofton family, and I am, and I always will be, whether I like it or not sometimes, a member of the Lofton family. Everyone in my family is united in being a Lofton. But just as I personally did absolutely nothing to become part of the Lofton family, in the same way, there's nothing any of us could have done or can do now to be brought into God's family. But having received salvation, we are united in God's family. That's a 
theological reality. And when you look around this room, whether you like it or not, even that person across the room is your family member in as much as you're both united together in Christ. There's nothing you or I can do to change that. So as believers, we are, it's a done deal, we are spiritually united. So this is the first main point that I want us to focus on. This tells us exactly what we need to know right off the bat. When we talk about serving the church, we're not talking about serving a set of programs, as cool as they can be. We're not talking about serving a building or some legal entity. Uh, Serving the church is serving precisely one another because we, the people, the believers in the Lord Jesus, we are the church. So those of us whom God has united into his family are the church. So take a look at the people around you. When we talk about serving the church, we're literally talking about serving each of those people that you see. All right, let's move to the next five verses. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Upon being united into God's family uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, each of us is given certain spiritual gifts. Look back at Ephesians uh, 4, verse 7. Paul says, to each one of us, grace was given. Now that word, uh, grace, is a very familiar one to us uh, in the church. And it's so familiar that sometimes I think we just assume that we know uh, its full meaning when we really need to look a little closer occasionally. The word grace is important in the New Testament. It's actually used 155 times in the New Testament. So that indicates something of its importance. Uh, And as Christians, what we need to know is that grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. That's true. That is seen, though, in two ways. It's seen both in God's making salvation available to us. That's what we're all immediately familiar with. But it also refers to his enabling us to live out that faith. So it's two important uh, senses of the word grace at work here. In this passage, it's being used in that second sense. There's a terrific uh, commentator on the book of Ephesians, a gentleman named Harold Honer. He put it this way. He says, Paul is referring to a particular enablement given to each believer to empower them for ministry. Now, if, if you're familiar with the preceding chapters of the book of Ephesians, then you know that Paul has been likening the church to a body, a physical body. It's just a continuing metaphor for him. And we know that the various parts of a physical body come together in a proper way in order to make possible the body's uh, healthy or proper functioning. Now, Paul's point at this point in, in Ephesians 4 is that each of us must contribute our unique uh, giftedness to the body in order for its proper functioning to be, be realized. We can't sit on the sidelines and just accept, expect the body to flourish magically, accidentally. So when we understand the importance of what Paul is saying here, I think we'll understand why he talks about this very same idea in several other places. So you might want to jot these down in the margin and compare them later. In 1 Peter, well, this is Peter, but not Paul, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, basically the whole chapter, and also in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. But back in our passage, Ephesians 4 and verse 11, Paul explains that God has given some as apostles, some as teachers, some as evangelists, and some as pastors. Now, this verse, I'm afraid is 
pretty frequently misunderstood by churchgoers. So let's dwell here for just a moment. Remember in verse 7, Paul has already said that each one of us, each one of us individually, has been given certain graces, that is, certain spiritual gifts. What are they for? We already read that they're to enable us to perform ministry. But here in verse 11, he says that in addition to the certain spiritual gifts we've received individually, we, the church collectively, have been given, uh, provided certain gifted persons, such as the members of your pastoral staff, like Pastor Matt, uh, your Sunday school teachers who serve here at the church. But why? Why have we collectively been given that kind of a gift if we've individually received gifts already? Well, I think we find the answer in the next verse, in verse 12. The reason God has given these gifted persons to us collectively is, what does Paul say? He says they're given to us in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, their job, Pastor Matt's job, for example, is to equip the church, the rest of us, for service. It, in other words, for ministry. This is, as Paul says here in, in verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ. So just a quick time out. If you've been thinking of uh, Matt as the minister of this church, or Cheryl and the team as the ministers to the church, you got it backwards. The passage says plainly, you guys are the ministers. Their job is to help equip you to do the work of ministry. Their, their job isn't the ministry. Our job is the ministry. Their job is to help us prepare for it. So let's pause for a moment now and just make sure we have the big picture uh, ready to hand. What's he saying? Every single one of us, individually, is given spiritual gifts. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you already have spiritual gifts, whether you've ever realized it before or not. You've got them. The purpose of these, these graces, as we read in uh, verse 7, is to enable us to perform the work of ministry. But simply being endowed with a spiritual gift doesn't automatically make us some kind of like masters uh, when it comes to the use of that gift. Just, just because you have a gift doesn't mean you're automatically some sort of a virtuoso in the use, the proper use of that gift. And so therefore, God has also given to us collectively certain helpers or leaders to build us up, to train us up in the proper use of our gifts so that we, the real ministers, can do the work of ministry. All right, so big picture, that's where we are. Does that make sense? You guys okay? All right. Second main point, I think we've just covered it in verses 7 through 12. This is the second thing we need to understand about serving the church. Serving the church is not the job of some sort of professional Christians precisely because there is no such thing as some sort of professional Christian. There's just no such thing. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't know where this kind of thinking comes from, but I think we'll all recognize it as something we've heard from others before. It's all too common idea in the church. It's this idea that there's two groups or two classes of Christians in the church. Somehow there's this idea that there's like the professional Christians and then there's the rest of us ordinary uh, Christians and we're the ones who like sit out in the pews on Sunday. The professionals are sometimes regarded as the pastors, the teachers, the director of the Waterhouse lecture series, you know, those professionals. Now why, why would anyone in the church think this? I don't know. I can try to float two ideas. Maybe the person who thinks this mistakenly assumes that the professionals are the ones with the gifts 
and the rest of us just don't have spiritual gifts. But we've already seen Paul's very forthright. That's not the case. We all have gifts. Maybe the idea is a little more subtle. Maybe the idea is that ordinary Christians have ordinary spiritual gifts, whereas the professionals have, well, professional grade, like big time spiritual gifts. And that's why they may think we should leave the work of ministry to the professionals. But I think this is deeply problematic. In talking to Christians over the years, though, I, I have heard this a number of times. So let me tell you as plainly as I can, friends, there is no hierarchy of spiritual gifts precisely because the one who distributes the spiritual gifts to you, that's the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's work, is the one who decides who gets what gifts. There is a specific way in which you uniquely contribute to the ministry by exercising your gift. Even if two people have the same gift, your exercising the gift is not the same as their exercising the gift. So there is no hierarchy of spiritual gifts. My gifts, your gifts, Pastor Matt's gifts, uh, Billy Graham's gifts, anyone you could think of, they're all doled out on the basis of the wisdom of the omniscient uh, triune God. And for that reason, we cannot think that we're somehow inferior in our gifts to Matt or Billy Graham. Okay, so our second point again. We just cannot leave the job of the ministry to professional Christians because there is no such thing. So when you look around the church and you ask yourself, who, as Paul puts it back in verse 1, who in this room is called to ministry, your answer had better be what Paul says. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. All right, let's move to uh, the, the final portion of our passage here. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. So in the remainder of our passage, in these last four verses, Paul completes his argument, he brings it full circle, by explaining the aim, or if you like, the purpose of serving the church, or which he's already called ministry. Now remember his flow of thought. We've got to keep the theological flow of thought straight. Once we're born into God's family through faith in Christ, each one of us receives certain spiritual gifts that enable or empower us to perform the work of ministry. Uh, that is, building up the, the church, which is one another. Now, to complete his thought, this is where he goes. Paul explains that serving the church, building up one another, uh, sorry, uh, is done precisely by using our spiritual gifts, the ones each of us have been given, for the purpose of accomplishing the other kind of unity, corporate unity. Now, remember I said earlier, there's two kinds of unity in this passage. We already talked about spiritual unity. That's something the Holy Spirit does and has done for each of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus. It's a done deal. We couldn't have done it anyway, and nothing can undo it now. But the other kind of unity, uh, what we'll call practical unity, is very much our, our responsibility. When the topic of spiritual maturity comes up, I think people in the church typically uh, focus on uh, individuals. We think in terms of our individual walk with the Lord, our private uh, prayer time and our devotional time, etc. And that is very important. But notice that throughout this passage, Paul's focus has been on the growth of the church corporately, all of us together collectively. So we need to ask, what does that corporate maturity look like? You know, how will we know what we're supposed to be doing for the accomplishing of this corporate maturity, this practical unity? 
practical unity is, after all, what the church corporately is being built into. So let me give you a, a definition that perhaps we can try on. <clears throat> if I can find it, sorry. <laughs> this unity is uh, the unity of our shared commitment to a life in Christ. So let me say it a little better. Is our commitment to the life that we share together in Christ. We're all really good at being committed to our individual lives, and even to our individual spiritual lives, although that's a little bit harder, I think. But what we just are not very good at is thinking in terms of being just as committed to the life that we share together corporately in Christ. Again, our spiritual unity is a fixed and unchangeable reality. But when we're seeking to achieve this practical unity that Paul talks about now in the final verses, we have to figure out how to strive together to make our shared experiences, our shared life in the church, reflect our spiritual unity. Does that make sense? We have to make our shared life together practically reflect the theologically secured spiritual unity that the Holy Spirit has accomplished. In doing this, we are seeking to measure up to nothing less than the perfect standard uh, of Christ, who is our head. Sorry about the static, guys. Great. You may think, great, that sounds really good. But how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we achieve this practical unity? Well, we achieve practical unity precisely by serving the church, that is, serving one another in love. And we serve one another precisely when we use the spiritual gifts that God has given to each one of us to edify one another in love. So what you have to keep in mind, again, is that we are a family. Just like I'm in the Lofton family, you and I together as believers in Jesus are members of God's family. Now we know how families go. As with any loving family, we've got, uh, you know, there's people like my brother, kind of odd, uh, don't fit in very well. Hey, Shane. Uh, you know, we don't want to name names in the, in the family here. We're sort of all together having a good time. But we know things don't always go perfectly smoothly in the family. But by being committed to the family in love, we approach these situations in a specific way. Let me tell you about it. Unity is not uniformity. We don't have to become carbon copies of one another. We couldn't do it anyway. Uh, Matt's got his own personality. Nolan's got his own personality. Shay has got her own personality. We just can't have everyone's personality. We're not aiming at uniformity, but we are aiming at unity, a certain coming together. We're not always going to agree with one another on everything. Hey, thanks. You're not half bad. How's this? Do I sound smarter? Do I sound more handsome now? But because we're a loving family, we're committed to that unity. We tolerate these differences in one another theologically, behaviorally when they come up, precisely because we are aiming for one another's highest good, the, the love together we have in Christ. You can get my point easily. It's for this very reason, the point that I'm making now, that the rest of us can tolerate even Dallas Cowboys fans who are in our midst. So that's the kind of idea that I have in mind here. <laughs> okay, so look, these last couple of verses, I think, lay out our uh, third main point pretty well. These last four verses yield this point, that serving the church requires love and also results in love. 
Notice what Paul says in verse 16. He writes, as each one, each one of us, does its part, the body grows in love. Now look, because true service in the church is always selfless, it's always sacrificial, it's always genuine, it's easy to see that it must require love. No one could ever fake that kind of uh, attitude consistently. It just takes genuine love. I dare say, for example, that most parents uh, don't relish the opportunity to keep on washing just endless and infinite number, it seems, of loads of dirty dishes, uh, loads of dirty laundry. Get an amen. We don't look forward to that, but we do it anyway because we love our family. It's the same kind of idea when it comes to serving the church. They just, it just keeps coming. More and more dirty dishes, more and more situations. We just keep plugging away because we love our family. So, as with any loving family, when you do continue serving one another in this way, in turn, it generates, you guessed it, more, more love. Okay, so these three points, the points that we've gotten from Ephesians 4, uh, these are an important part, I think, of what Paul and Barnabas must have been teaching those churches as they traced their way uh, 650 miles back to their sending church. But as I finished preparing for this sermon, an interesting thought occurred to me. It, it occurred to me that some of you may be asking yourselves this. Maybe you're thinking, uh, okay, I get that serving the church uh, is about serving one another. Uh, I get that uh, I have the responsibility of serving the church, that, it, that that responsibility falls to each of us, not just uh, Pastor Matt and the staff. I get that serving the church requires love and that it results in more love. I sort of get all that, but wait a minute. Lofton still hasn't said anything about specifically how I am supposed to plug in to serving the church. So, so what exactly, literally, am I supposed to do? Okay, maybe you weren't thinking all of that, but you're thinking part of it, perhaps. Well, that's true. Uh, I haven't given you guys specific assignments. When you leave, there's not going to be a basket with little slips giving out specific assignments, and you just each take one. It just doesn't work that way. You might think that would be easier, but in fact, that would be undermining the, God's intention for the process. That's not how loving and serving a family works. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit has given you, specifically you, the, uh, the spiritual gifts that you have. If you are a believer, you do have them, remember. So you will serve the church, Wiley Baptist Church, by contributing or using your gifts, whatever gifts God has given to you, to building up the body. That's exactly what ministry is. That's what serving the church means. What your pastoral staff does is important, and we're extremely grateful, extremely grateful for their service. But which do you remember more clearly? Sorry, Matt. Which of these do you remember more clearly? Uh, Matt's exact sermon from uh, this time last year? Or do you remember the time that somebody in this room served you when you needed to be served the most? Maybe in a time of grief, maybe in a time where you were just low and you were encouraged. Those are the things, aren't they, that we tend to remember. And it's no surprise. It's because that's how God has intended, how he's designed for this family to work. If you're still just not sure of specifically how you can serve the church, let me tell you a big open secret. You tell somebody on staff at this church that you now realize you have a spiritual gift and you want to start serving, but you don't know what to do, I bet you a really nice dinner. 
that they will hook you up. Is that fair to say? They will find for you. They will help you find. If you say, I just don't know what my spiritual gifts are. I believe I have them. I just don't know what they are. Let me encourage you to get with your group of friends and just ask them. Most of the time, the first people who recognize your gifts are the people around you. Okay. If you want to serve the churches, these churches, if we want to be a faithful local expression of the body of Christ, and I know that we do, let us fix our minds. Let us concentrate with intentionality. Let us resolve, even, to be members of the church that by the power of the Holy Spirit serve one another in unity leading toward love.